Hello, my fellow climate warriors. This is Matt Myers. Welcome to another episode of Climate Tech Cocktails, where we grab a drink or two with best-in-class climate tech founders to learn from their life journeys, dive into bleeding-edge technologies, and have a laugh while we're at it. My guest today is Greg Dixon, CEO of Voltus. You can find Greg at Greg underscore Dixon on Twitter, and also Voltus on Twitter at Voltus Inc., Greg is a world-renowned expert in commercial and industrial energy management and has pioneered many of today's innovations and technologies that unlock the economic and environmental benefits of more intelligent energy management. Prior to Voltus, Greg developed and executed Enernoc's award-winning go-to-market strategy that took Enernoc from zero to nearly $500 million in revenue over the course of 10 years. Among its past achievements, he created more than 350 jobs, brought to market more than 10,000 megawatts of demand response around the world, delivered more than $1 billion in cash savings to customers, opened more than two dozen markets for the very first time to demand-side resources, and architected the company's product strategy. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Greg Dixon, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Matt. So what are we drinking this evening? I am drinking an Americana with a splash of half and half and a little bit of honey. Great. I appreciate that because it is, what, 8 p.m. your time. I got to burn the midnight oil tonight, so it's okay. <laughs> and that honey, where is it from? That honey is from my yard. Amazing. Do you have uh, your own uh, beekeeping kit? Yes, I do. <clears throat> um, you may be familiar with the Flow Hive. If you're not, I encourage everybody to check out the Flow Hive. Makes beekeeping super easy. I got into it, I don't know, six or seven years ago with the kids, and it's really lovely. It's a lot of fun, and uh, they make damn good honey. Amazing. Do you have to put on a beekeeping suit when you tend to your hive? Well, I have one, but I've never needed it. Honeybees generally are very docile. You get accustomed to them. They get accustomed to you. And generally, you know, you can stick your hand right in the hive. So long as you're not nervous, they will do what's called bearding, which, you know, they'll essentially cover your arm. As long as you're not nervous, there's no real risk of getting stung. Yeah. I remember from Jerry Maguire that bees can smell fear. They can. Yeah. And then once one stings, <laughs> lots of other ones will. Wow. Okay. It's a party. So uh, I appreciate that you are going the non-alcoholic route. I am not. I have a concoction here that is Phil's coffee. It's Silk and Splendor, my flavor of choice. And I added some Baileys to it and also some bourbon called Redwood Empire. It's named Pipe Dream. Matt, that sounds like more of an apres ski drink. Is it cold in San Francisco? It's always cold in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, it's called Redwood Empire because this bourbon is from Sonoma County, California. Very cool. Great. So I'd like to start out with where you grew up. Where are you from? I grew up in a tiny little town called Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Where is that exactly? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in New Hampshire. It's in the northern part of New Hampshire in the White Mountains, the beautiful White Mountains of northern New Hampshire, you may be familiar with a mountain called Mount Washington. It's a beautiful, rugged, incredibly serene place to grow up. And was living there that contribute to you falling in love with nature? 
Very much. My parents moved there when I was very, very young, maybe two years old. They had a love of the White Mountains. They were from Boston and they loved to ski and hike and fish and play with their friends. They started a, a ski club in Bethlehem, New Hampshire, and then eventually decided that they wanted to move to the land of milk and honey away from the city. And that's where they raised us. And so we, we grew up in the, in the mountains, you know, enjoying all of the wonders of nature. Sounds really beautiful. I was just up in Maine for about a week. Oh, cool. Where in Maine? I was in Portland, Maine, and then I went to the Fingers of Maine. Very cool. Kind of the same neighborhood. Amazing place during the summer. Oh, it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, do you regularly engage with nature at this point in your life? Every moment I can uh, with my family. I can't get enough. What kind of activities? Anything that you can kill yourself doing, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Mountain biking, uh, rock climbing, motocross, you name it. Or at this point, just going indoors without a mask. Yeah. (laughs) What a world. What a world. After growing up in New Hampshire, where in the world did you go? Yeah. So I started my career in management consulting. And as management consultants do, they generally spend a lot of time at the client locations, whatever the case is that you're assigned in management consulting. And I tended to take cases that would take me as far out in the world as as I could get. So I've lived and worked all over the world from Tokyo to Southern China and Hong Kong, all over Europe, Vienna, Amsterdam, Paris, London. I lived in St. Croix for a year, worked all over the United States, all over Canada. I've been everywhere, man, as Johnny Cash might say. Speaking of Johnny Cash, you seem to be quite the guitar player. And before we started recording, you were showing me a bit of your home studio there. Could you please describe where you're sitting? (laughs) Well, I'm sitting in my home office, but it kind of doubles as a studio, if you want to call it that. It's adorned with every imaginable musical instrument, guitars all over the walls, Drums, keys, PA, amplifiers, bongos, tambourines, (laughs) you name it. I probably would be characterized more as a collector than a player, but I I do love to um, make music with my family and friends. And it's a great thing to have in your workspace because I find that it's very therapeutic. I'm too focused on something and I'm just jamming four hours straight. It's nice to just step away and play the drums five feet away. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you if you get off of a really tough call? Do you just go bang on the drums for totally. seconds? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Put a little drumless uh, backing track on and just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bang on the drums all day, right? Yeah. What do you, what do you play when you're angry? Or or let's just say when you want to be inspired. Either yeah, way. you know, I, I love soul. I love funk, jazz, blues, you know, classic rock. You know, it really, it really ranges. It could be, I'll jam along to some live local music I find on YouTube. Or, you know, there's so many options, right? I mean, you can find a, you can find drumless or guitarless tracks for any song on YouTube. It makes essentially playing in a virtual band really convenient and easy. Which is important these days. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've got a lot of musician friends and they've had, they've fallen on uh, hard times over the last 12 months. And hopefully those hard times won't come back over the, the next few months. Fingers crossed. Speaking of which. I just announced last week that in November 2022, we're going to have Climate Tech 8, which is a concert for and by entrepreneurs in climate tech. So if you want to play, um, I'm just guessing you're good. So if you want to play or and or are in a band or want to start a band of amazing people in climate tech, you can play. You know what? I'd love to do it. 
And um, I like to think that I actually started the original clean tech battle of the bands. In no. fact, in my days at Enronoc, we started an internal battle of the bands. And that eventually blossomed and we got other clean tech companies to join us no. in clean tech battle of the bands in Boston. That fell apart when I moved on from Enronoc, but I would love to reinvigorate it. That's amazing. When was this? Jeez, from 2004 until 2015. Yeah, we, we had we had like O Power. O Power had O Power had a legit funk band. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. There's some real there's some real artistic talent in clean tech. Not surprising. Amazing. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation, and we also have to share with everybody because this inspires me that this is actually going to happen, and it's happened before. So why can't it happen again? But make it bigger. Yeah, well, hey, I got some ideas. And in fact, a good friend who is in clean tech, a guy by the name of Andrew Shapiro, you may know, he is an, an amazing musician himself, but he's deeply connected in the music community. And we got to get him involved. Okay, okay. This is on. Uh, I'm looking to do it week before or weekend before the midterm elections next it's week. Awesome. This podcast is over. Our work is done here. <laughs> <laughs> this battle of the bands off the ground. Absolutely. And I think I'm going to end up partnering with Clean Energy for America. And so we can do it either the weekend before, so it's a real get out the vote thing, or we can do it in August, September and make it a fundraising thing. So one or the other. Or we can have a smaller one that's for a fundraising thing, like in your house with that setup. Yeah. And then we can do a bigger one that's a, that's a get out the vote. So we could do both. I'm game. I'm down. I'm down Great. for it. I'll line up the resources. We, this, this has to happen. Great. We, we have saved the world already. Look at that. <laughs> if we haven't, we're all going to hell listening to great music. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I'm surprised that you've been sober this week after the release of that IPCC report. Well, it's a call to arms. Yeah. I'm an optimist. Yeah. I figure if anything was going to get you to have a drink, it would be that report. (laughs) (laughs) Many drinks. So so, um, what I want to do here is talk about grid. I've got a book called The Grid, which I read through a while ago, which is fantastic. Anybody listening to this, go and read The Grid, and it'll really improve your knowledge about how it actually works. But can we go back to when the grid was actually invented? Like you had Edison versus Tesla at the World's Fair in this big competition. And um, you know, clearly Edison won. But can we go back to the creation of the grid? And I think that'll help set up the rest of this conversation. Yeah, sure. Edison won in the sense that General Electric got its start on the heels of his commercializing technology. But actually... Tesla won in the sense that his technology, alternating current, became the dominant form of how we transmit power. Fair enough. But let's let's also like paint a picture for what was going on at the time. Interest, I think there are a lot of parallels to today. A lot of this is captured in one of my favorite books called ACDC, The Original Standards War, which is the standards war between Tesla and Edison. It's really fascinating because at that time, a lot of electrification was about the same things that electrification is about today. Back then, we had very dirty oil lamps and we had horse-drawn carriages in cities where horses were defecating all over the place. And then we went to steam-powered lorries that were fired with coal and were emitting really noxious fumes into cities. 
And so the notion that actually Edison and Ford, Henry Ford, got together on was an electric vehicle. That was what was going to replace these horse-drawn carriages. Edison wanted to replace these oil lamps with the light bulb, obviously. And it really was a response in many ways to an environmental issue. And now today, we're trying to electrify as many things as possible in response to climate change. To clarify, this was in response to an environmental issue, meaning because the source of the oil was unsustainable, it was coming from whales. Is that why? No, because burning, burning oil in an oil lamp produced incredibly uh, poor air quality, right? right. And, uh, and burned things down. <laughs> you know, like, and so, you know, a lot of fires in inner cities were caused by these oil burning lamps. And obviously, steam being powered with coal produces in- incredible air pollution and ash that can catch things on fire. And so the response to that was electrification. Also, you said that they were working on electric vehicles at the time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were thinking about essentially replacing horse-drawn lorries and steam-powered lorries with an electric vehicle. And World War I had a really disruptive impact on that because that is when the internal combustion engine really took hold. In order to cart soldiers and munitions across battlefields, there wasn't an electrical distribution system to power batteries, obviously, uh, but the internal combustion engine fit the bill. And because of the industrial machine that was built to support that, what came back from World War One was an industrial, uh, an industrialized technology, the internal combustion engine, that then became our, our prime mover. Also, to go back to the grid, right? We had AC versus DC, this big competition. Then after that, they started to actually build out the infrastructure of the grid. How has that changed from then until now? Not a lot. Not a lot, right? That's why I asked that question because it really hasn't changed too much. Yeah, you know, in the early days, right, Thomas Edison built Pearl Street Station. Thomas Edison mm-hmm. built Pearl Street Station, I think, in like 1892 in Lower Manhattan. And that really sparked an incredible trend to electrify and create municipal utilities. And so those municipal utilities or private capital driven utilities sought essentially a monopoly customer base to protect the capital investments that they were making that then powered communities and, you know, and cities. And eventually that evolved into the balkanized set of 3,300 electric utilities that characterize our our grid today. And that really hasn't changed much over, you know, a hundred years. That's amazing to think about because how much do we depend upon electricity now? Like how much of our GDP is relied upon electricity? A hundred percent. I would argue 100%. Um, and that's due to the simple fact that when there are power outages, for instance, some people would say, well, I'm on natural gas, I'll have heating. Well, no, you won't, because we need to pump that natural gas. Fans need to move the heated air through your house, perhaps, or the water in a hydronic heating system. And so every single thing, our modern economy depends entirely on reliable electricity. And that's becoming more and more true as availability, you know, our expectation for availability, instant availability of resources increases over time, right? I mean, even Amazon has next day delivery. We expect instantaneous response from whatever technology we happen to be using. And that's powered, obviously, by electricity. And when we don't have electricity, we feel the effects of that more and more as we electrify our economy more and more. Right. I mean, what are you going to do? Play Monopoly? <laughs> Actually, 
it's funny you mention that. My kids and I love to play Monopoly. <laughs> so yes, we play Monopoly when the lights go up. <laughs> I think we take that for granted because I remember I'm 37 years old. So I remember growing up, we used to have blackouts every once in a while. And we didn't have cell phones with service so we could still do things online. It was like we had nothing and we had to, we even have Sega Genesis to play. Like we had to figure out what to do with ourselves sometimes for a day. Yeah. We don't really have that anymore. But now we have pandemics, which lock us in our homes. And (laughs) it's like an extreme version of a blackout. I don't know if it's easier for my kids growing up now or harder. I, you know, I had a, we, we had a little bit of an incident with my 15 year old <laughs> in the discussion over the parenting challenge we were having. I essentially boiled it down to, look, I'm glad I didn't have a cell phone or this technology when I was your age, because if, if we did, I, I would not be employable right now. But unfortunately for you, everything <laughs> is forever kept on the internet and you have to be very careful. <laughs> right. And powered by electrons. And, and so I, I think that I was thinking about this before our conversation that with climate change, at least the United States, unless there's a wildfire, people aren't really noticing. It. They don't see a lot of the emissions or experience them so much. Uh, so therefore, there's this kind of lack of appreciation of the situation. And I, and I think that the same could also go for electricity, where we all don't understand how much we rely upon it now until the moment we don't have it. We have this lack of understanding about what is going on behind the scenes with all this energy production and transmission to power our economies. I might be getting a little prophetic here, but uh, that I think is something that I'd like to capture in this conversation, the importance of of electrons, and then we'll get to what you do. But I mean, I'm guessing you could at least agree with that concept. Yeah, well, there are a lot of parallels, you know, as we talk about technology or the internet and electricity. When we think about the internet, we take for granted the fact that if I'm in Boston and you're in San Francisco and we switch places, our smartphones and our devices that are connected to the internet interoperate without a, a glitch. But the way the grid works in Boston and the way it works in San Francisco and who manages it and how they manage it are mm. completely different standards. And so as we, as our economy expands and we're more digitized, we have to look the modern technology stack to inform how we improve and re-architect the grid. So for instance, we have very high-speed internet with a single TCP IP protocol that connects us instantaneously to everything in the world. But we don't have a a transmission superhighway in this country. Mm -hmm. The goal we really need to focus on is what we've learned from employing standards in modern technology like the internet. We need a single transmission superhighway to take the really high quality wind in the Oklahoma panhandle to parts of the Southeast, or we take, we want to take the solar power in the Southwest and ship it to the Northern Midwest. We haven't gotten there yet. If we're going to really make a clean energy transition or an energy transition to renewable power, which is intermittent, we need massive amounts of transmission and we got to get it done soon. Right. It's like if crypto developers really took a look at how 
how the United States electricity grid functions, their minds would be blown. <laughs> totally. But, you know, the funny thing is they, they're becoming – crypto miners are becoming absolute experts in electricity because 90% of their cost of doing business is the cost of electricity. We're really going off on tangents here, and I'm going to pull it back. But on that note, an article that you sent me that you – or actually a blog post that you wrote noted that it estimated that in 10 years, crypto will be responsible for uh, about 2% of global energy consumption, correct? Global electricity consumption. That's correct. That's, you know, one in 50 electrons will be consumed powering crypto mines. Right. So it, so do you think that if you have, let's say the, well, let's just call it one of what could be one of the most technologically advanced infrastructures interacting with the U.S. electric grid, do you think that actually could lead to benefits or, or benefit the U.S. electric grid by having to, to interact with this system, this infrastructure? Well, I would hope so. There are, this is a hot topic, right? You know, if, if what we're talking about is cryptocurrency and how, you know, the mon- the mo- a modern monetary system collides with an antiquated electricity system, there are challenges and opportunities where they collide. You, you may be familiar with the fact that the Chinese essentially have shut down crypto mining because they were soaking up all of the electricity demand in the country and making it very challenging for um, other parts of the economy to um, be powered. And so a lot of those Chinese crypto miners have come to the U.S. The the growth in that electricity consumption from crypto mining, which was already astronomical, uh, was just put on rocket fuel because the Chinese now are, are here developing their crypto mines and taking their technologies into the U.S. where it's a friendlier environment to um, power those mines. So you're seeing that real time right now? Real time, yeah. And we, we serve a lot of crypto mines. We, we serve many, many crypto mines. And so we see their demand growth, not only in real time, but in aggregate across the country. It's the, it's the single fastest growing electricity demand in the United States. Do you think that's going to be a net positive to the deployment of renewables at the end of the day? It's a huge debate, right? You know, some folks will debate that uh, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is very environmentally destructive and not additive to our economy, while others will say that actually, you know, crypto mines in some ways are a form of energy storage. They can be controlled in real time to help balance and backstop intermittent renewables. You know, the fact of the matter is cryptocurrency isn't going away and renewables are growing very rapidly too. So in my mind, there seems to be a really good opportunity to blend the two together and come up with a good solution. So I'm going to shill another project before we switch gears here. I actually just launched a, a group with my friend Ryan Kushner called Crypto for Climate Group or C4CG. We have like 30 really solid people in that group and it's going to grow. So I, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to join. It's just a chat group where we're sharing ideas and it's a lot of investors and entrepreneurs. Great. Yeah, stuff like that. Anybody listening who wants to join can write me. And if, you know, if they have value to add to the group, that's amazing. So I, I think that there is actually a, you know, that we should embrace what's happening with this $2 trillion industry, right? And make sure that climate and renewables are involved with the innovation that's taking place over the next decade in this space. Great. Uh, great. I, amazing. I just got a new C4CG member. Sign me up. Live. Cha-ching. Great. Okay. What I want to do is I want to <laughs> I want to go along your entrepreneurial journey of 
two decades <laughs> in an efficient manner. And I want to start this conversation with a quote that lots of people know, but I know inspires you and I think could help kick off this part of the conversation. So here's the quote. It is not the critic who counts, not the person who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strides valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends themselves in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he or she fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his or her place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Gives me chills every time I read it or hear it. So what does that quote mean to you? And we'll call it um, women and men or people in the arena. (laughs) Yeah, it's, well, you know, so you're quoting Teddy Roosevelt from, you know, a speech that I think is commonly known as the man in the arena that he gave in a speech in Paris in the early 1900s at the Sorbonne. And, oh man, that, that, that quote, I probably read it every day. It gives me chills every time I read it. It gives me courage and fortitude every time I, I read it because my life is all about being in the arena, whether it's professionally or otherwise. It really is about being in the arena and doing my personal best to be part of a contribution. And we talk a lot at Voltus about the women and men in the arena. That's a Voltan. Those are the folks that we, we hire. It isn't the critic who counts. It, it is the woman or man in the arena doing the deed. And what time of day do you read this quote? Is this like, a, a, you know, 7 a.m., let's get the day started read? Or is this a 3 p.m., I need another burst of energy <laughs> to make it to 8 p.m. for a podcast? <laughs> it's, it's, it's yes and yes. Sometimes I'll read it in the morning. I, I like to practice, you know, gratitude in the morning. I wake up and the first thing I do is I think about all the the things I'm grateful for. And sometimes I will, I will read that quote in the morning. It's very inspirational. And it reminds me, I got to put my nose to the grindstone. Sometimes in times of trouble where I'm stressed, I'm overworked, I'm feeling deflated, I will, I will read that because I've suffered a defeat and I need to recognize that that's part of competition. Mm-hmm. That's part of what it means to be in the arena, but to never give up, you got to stay in the arena. It's really important to embrace failure as an entrepreneur. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. I've failed at everything, usually twice. (laughs) And you also, to know, practice um, TM, Transcendental Meditation. I do. Right. Do you do that on a daily basis? I don't. You know, I, I need to do better, but I have found it to be very beneficial to help clear my mind because it often gets too cluttered. It's a very simple practice that anyone can pick up and has tremendous health benefits. Awesome. I meditate every day. I haven't done TM yet. I'm really looking forward to it. I don't have a mantra or anything like that, but I am going to get into TM at a certain point. Yeah, I encourage it. Good for you. I'm glad you meditate. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been in the arena for almost 20 years, at least in the in the uh, energy arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of scar tissue. <laughs> we had a happy hour last week in the Bay Area with like, 
over 70 people when I was in this conversation and somebody somehow it went to how old I was. And I was trying to explain that I've been in this space, quote unquote, climate tech is what we call it now for five to six years. And I was like, you know, I'm new, but there's a lot of new people getting into this space, like in the last year or two. And I'm going, well, I'm not necessarily part of that group. I'm part of like, a, uh, you know, somebody who's been here a bit longer. Is that clean tech 1.5? You know, I think you're like... That, the valley, the valley of death, clean tech valley of death between clean tech 1.0 and 2.0. Yeah, not to get political here. When I started, it was pretty much when Trump got elected, so it couldn't get much worse for clean tech. I guess it, it probably has at a certain point, but that was well. well l- let me just say this: I, I actually think you're really wrong about any correlation between Trump and and clean tech. I think there's, I don't really think that presidency had any impact on clean tech other than, well, look, the past five years have been, have seen unprecedented investment Mm -hmm. in clean tech. And I certainly wouldn't attribute that to that administration. Right. Yet, I also say that one of the best commissioners ever to serve on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is a Trump appointee, Commission Neil Chatterjee, who is a Mm -hmm huge proponent of competition and distributed energy resources in federal mar- federal wholesale markets. And uh, his 22-22 order is a seminal order, one of the most important orders in all of FERC history. I actually agree with you. I ended up, well, we'll talk about it offline, but I ended up working with the DOE and uh, with that administration. And there were a lot of great things that happened that people don't appreciate sure. um, because it was Trump and you know, all the things they get caught up in it, right? They get caught yeah, up. They, they came along in, with that in the blues and reds. And this. Well, I, I, I will say this: the first event, clean tech event I ever held was like, I think a few months after he got elected. It was very somber. It was very somber. It ended up working out okay, but that was a very uh, depressing time. But neither here nor there. I am. What I was getting at is that you have been in clean tech since it was like. What clean tech zero point one? <laughs> yeah, it was really the. You know, I'm, look, there there have been folks banging their head against the clean tech wall for decades and decades. My dad was one of them <laughs> back in the seventies, building solar panels in the backyard. But really, let's talk about I, that though. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I've got a I've got a picture of a my mom and I were just talking about my dad who passed about ten years ago and. He built this thermal solar panel in the backyard. He had all kinds of crazy ideas and contraptions that he worked on, but this massive thermal solar panel that he had built in the backyard with the hopes of essentially avoiding uh, the cost of oil heating (laughs) to to create hot water, you know, as is true with any entrepreneur creating a product for the first time, you know, there were some trials and tribulations, not least of which was the fact that by the time the water made its way from the solar panel underground about 100 feet in our field to the house. It had cooled down in the dead of winter and 20 below uh, weather in northern New Hampshire. So it didn't work out great in the winter when we needed it most. (laughs) Was this during the Jimmy Carter days? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Okay, yeah. Because Jimmy Carter was the person who put solar panels on the roof of the White House and also... Uh, created the entity that became the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Those were really the beginnings of clean tech, I guess. 
Did that inspire you, your dad doing that? Or is there any relation uh, between what he was doing to you actually getting into energy? Yeah, it inspired me not to get into energy is the, is the truth. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. You know, my, my mom divorced him over all these kinds of things. And, uh, and that's, a, that, that's true. In fact, when I went off to college, I studied computer science. I had no interest in energy whatsoever. My dad used to talk about the stuff all the time and experiment with all kinds of things, you know, river powered electricity and solar thermal and you name it. And, you know, the shit I grew up with the shit never working. So I didn't want anything to do with it, but I went off to college, studied computer science. And when I went into management consulting, one of my clients was, um, was Hess, the big oil company uh, on the East coast. You know, long story short, one of my friends who led that case, who I believe you talked to David Wilkie uh, was hired by John Hess, the owner of Hess to lead a small technology company that was focused on co-generation systems in California. Mm-hmm. And he hired me to lead marketing and sales. And when I had dinner with him and he was describing what cogeneration was, I was finishing his sentences over dinner because cogeneration and thermodynamics were the kinds of things that my dad would talk about over the dinner table at the dinner table. And a light bulb went off over my head because at that point I was kind of looking for purpose. At that stage in my career, I was looking yeah. for what is the purpose of all the hard work that I, I'm putting in every day because I'm a just naturally hardworking, competitive person. And I didn't have real purpose at the time. And a light bulb went off over my head and that was 20 years ago. And it was like, wow, this is really what my dad was talking about. And I don't know if it was in my blood, but that was it. And I haven't looked back. And that's, let's say, the beginning of Enernock? Well, that was the beginning of my journey in clean tech. And that was, uh, I guess, 2000, 2001 in co-generation with a company called Hess Microgen, which was located in uh, in Tahoe. And a couple, three years into that, I met the founder of Anernock, uh, a guy named Tim Healy. And it was just he and a co-founder, David Brewster, at the time. And uh, I met him when I was presenting on a Department of Energy roadshow on the virtues of co-generation technology. Uh, we struck up a friendship. And then I eventually joined Tim and David to get Enernock off the ground. And how long was that journey? So I spent a little more than 11 years at, Enern- at Enernock. From my understanding, Voltus is an evolution of Enernock, correct? That's absolutely correct. And um, what does Voltus do? Can we describe what demand response is for dummies? <laughs> well, I'll broaden it a little bit because we're not just demand response. We okay. Voltus is a distributed energy resources technology platform that essentially has created a marketplace to connect distributed energy resources of all types, which I'll get into the description of, to electricity markets that value the attributes of those distributed energy resources and pay those, I'll I'll shorthand it to DERs, pay those DERs for those attributes. So distributed energy resources are, uh, there are four types. We call them the four horsemen of DERs, demand response, distributed generation, energy storage, and energy efficiency. What Voltus does is connect any of those types of things to these electricity markets with our software platform and ensure that the value of those DERs make it to market and Mm -hmm. value that those markets place on those DERs make it back to the owners of those DERs. 
And so can we kind of go into first the energy market side of things, you know, so people can understand what the <laughs> what the complex U.S. energy market place looks like? Sure. I'll start with what I would say is a standard market design that will trigger some people who are listening, SMD, standard market design for an electricity market. We'll use that as a model. I won't pick on PJM or ERCOT or KISO or New York ISO. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just start at a very high level and describe the concepts of a, an electricity market. Like any market, the market is where supply and demand meet. Electricity markets are unique uh, because of the unique nature of electricity needing to be supplied exactly when it is in demand. And so as a result of the fact that we have this physical challenge of delivering electrons exactly when they are demanded or else we have blackouts, mm-hmm. we procure what's called a, an operating margin for supply to deliver against a forecasted level of demand that represents what we believe will be the peak electricity consumption over some planning period. So the simplest way to think about it is if you're planning an electricity market, you say, okay, what do I believe the peak demand will be, which is typically attributed to the hottest day in the summer over some, say, five or 10-year horizon? And you say, what's, what's going to be the hottest day in 10 years that will then correlate to electricity demand? I'm going to need that much supply plus typically a 15% buffer or operating margin. That sets what we call the supply stack. That's how much we need to procure based on a forecast of demand. That supply is purchased. It could be in a forward market. It could be in a real-time market like in ERCOT, uh, a forward market like PJM, say three years, three years forward. And then every day, that supply and demand meets in the market and clears itself. Demand pays supply. Supply must meet demand. And that's how the electricity market works. So are you guys a marketplace? We are. So you guys work with CNI, which is, for those who don't know, commercial and industrial demand. And so you are procuring supply with a buffer. And you're interacting with demand and creating a, a marketplace. Is that what you guys are doing? Yeah. So now let's take the concept of the electricity market I described. And let's just talk a little bit about the supply side of the market, because that's really where our DER technology platform plays. Even though we are using behind the meter demand related Mm -hmm. assets, we're actually creating a supply resource that's more commonly known as a virtual power plant. Okay. So if you are the market operator, or you're operating this market and you have to buy that supply to meet demand, you're going to get it from hydro, natural gas, nukes, solar, wind, coal. You can also buy virtual power plant capacity or virtual power plant electricity. That's where Voltus comes in. We go out and we work with these large commercial and industrial end users, large energy consumers, and we work with DER, what we call distributed energy resource partners that might bring large aggregations of a certain DER type into our marketplace. So for instance, you see the, the Nest thermostat on my wall. You know, There's something like 10 million Nest Wi-Fi thermostats in the US, 40 million Wi-Fi thermostats of all brands uh, in the US. The aggregation of every single one of those thermostats can flow through the Voltus platform 
to help us create a virtual power plant that we bid in as a supply resource mm. into the electricity markets. Okay. The market operator will buy our virtual power plant attributes no differently than they would buy hydro or coal or, or nukes. It's just another supply resource that they have to manage their market. Interesting. So you're bringing essentially new forms of storage onto the marketplace. That's right. And so part of our DER platform, well, we have every type of distributed energy resource using our platform today. We have behind the meter energy storage. We have Wi-Fi thermostats. We have electric vehicle charging. We have distributed generation. We have load curtailment through building management systems. We have a whole host of these DERs that come to our marketplace expecting to be monetized. These DERs come to the marketplace Mm -hmm. because there's an economic benefit of doing that. We sit, the software platform simplifies their market access no matter where those resources are. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the United States electricity market is very complex. It's very Byzantine. It's balkanized. There are six entirely different wholesale electricity markets, some of which are connected, some of which aren't, and they all have different market rules. So it's a a great challenge for a software platform to solve. We simplify what would otherwise be very, very complex for someone to make sense out of to try to monetize their DERs in an electricity market on their own. So on the demand side, are you interacting with the average owner of a DER? As an example, unfortunately, I don't own an EV yet. My partner does. I know you just winced. My partner does. um, But let's say she um, has access storage capacity on her electric vehicle. Are you interacting potentially with her to provide her with an opportunity to monetize the excess storage on her car. Yes, uh, perfect example. Perfect example, Matt. So let's run this one out. Point of fact, by the year 2030, the combined lithium-ion battery capacity in electric vehicles in the United States will be more than two times the power generation capacity of all traditional forms of electricity supply in the United States. So let me read that backwards. If you take all the coal plants, the nuclear plants, the hydro, the dams, the solar, solar, wind, natural gas plants, you add them up, you'd have to multiply that by two to represent the amount of capacity that will be in American cars by the year 2030. Now, every one of those EVs today is instantaneously addressable over the internet. So your partner eventually and soon will be able to, on her dashboard, Mm -hmm. select an option to contribute some capacity, some amount of capacity of that electric vehicle's battery for what's called grid services. So let's say she says she's got a 100 kW, uh, 100 kilowatt hour battery. Mm -hmm. Um, There's going to be some slick user interface that says, well, for 20% of that battery capacity, I'll give you 20 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And she selects the 20%. And then anytime that battery has 20% of its capacity available, our platform would then monetize that in these electricity markets in real time if it is, in fact, connected and it's charging. And that's called V1G, meaning simply curtailing the charging of electric vehicles to be part of a virtual power plant. Then there's V2G. 
And that's vehicle two grid, meaning taking that 100 kilowatt hour battery and exporting its capability onto the grid. So as opposed to just reducing its charging capability, which might be five kilowatts of charging, V2G allows the whole 100 kilowatt hours to be exported to the grid and increases its capability 20x in doing so. Wow. That's amazing. And I want to talk about thermostats, and that's thermostats as well, because I want to transition this to something else. But can somebody do that also with their thermostat? Yeah. In fact, my Nest thermostat is in what, what's called the Rush Hour Rewards Program, the one right behind me on the wall here. And that is for a local distribution level utility program. So my utility is National Grid. And right on my Nest thermostat interface, I have signed up to the Rush Hour Rewards Program. They make it super simple. And for every one of the Nests in my home, I get a $20 per year prepaid Visa card. National Grid then controls my Nest thermostats. Mm -hmm. If there's a Rush Hour Rewards Day where they need to conserve energy on peak, I can also eventually use that thermostat for wholesale market purposes. So you can often stack the value or the use cases of these DERs. So National Grid may use the thermostat for local reliability uh, challenges or price arbitrage. And then ICE New England, the wholesale grid operator, which is a federal jurisdictional market, might also want to call on the capacity of my thermostat for New England-wide reliability or economic purposes. Okay, so I saw this article where somebody in Texas signed up for something similar to this, and then their thermostat was forced up to like, let's say, 80 degrees during a heat wave, and they couldn't change the temperature of their thermostat. And they had no idea what was going on. They're like, oh my gosh, we have a baby, and we were sleeping in the heat and I couldn't do anything about it. Now, I assume this is probably a bunch of FUD, but my, <laughs> I know you're shaking your head because you're like, I don't want to talk about this. But I, I, I think it is an interesting point to bring up. Like, is that is that a challenge that, that you are facing right now? And do you think that's just something that's going to be sorted out over time? Well, I, I actually, I'm shaking my head because I want to talk about it. And I certainly don't want to dismiss anybody's personal discomfort and the seriousness of um, the situations that were described in, in the various news articles that came out about that. But the fact of the matter is that thermostat, you know, I, th- I suspect if we dug into the facts, the actual yeah. situation of any of these stories, what we would learn is that that thermostat was signed up to be part of a program. Now, it may be the case that it was the prior home's owner that had signed up the thermostat and that thermostat had been pulled out of the program when the home changed hands. I don't really know. But the bottom line is even my my Nest thermostat here that's part of the Rush Hour Rewards Program, I can override it anytime I want. And certainly if you pulled the thermostat out of the wall, it would stop stop (laughs) operating. (laughs) So, you know, I, I think... Again, I don't want to be dismissive, but I, I do think that there was a lot of important detail lost in the emotion of that situation. Right. It's that kind of like emotion over a feeling of loss of control. When you actually do have control, you just don't know that you do. Right. And so that's just kind of like an education situation. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that, that is, you know, so there's CNI, DERs, there's residential DERs, right? And the use cases can be significantly different. Um, we don't focus on residential 
DERs other than through aggregations of DER partners. It's a whole different challenge. You do have situations where you have a change in home ownership where a device may still be operating in a utility program and the coordination hasn't been uh, worked out. Okay. So I also want to stick on the tough side of this conversation, the challenges you all are facing. What was it like experiencing or going through the freeze in Texas? And so it wasn't only Texas that had that freeze and the, the huge power outage and all these people suffering, like, you know, I think it's important for people to understand what was going on and how we can fix those problems. But also there was a, a crisis in California only eight months ago as well. So um, it's in California right now. In fact, you might get a public service shut off in any moment. What? During the podcast? Maybe. <laughs> I, I know. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Tuesday night that PG&E had announced they were going to implement their public service power shutoffs for certain customers. But I digress. You know, the winter storm URI brought the uh, the energy hub of the universe as we know it to its knees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was the worst blackout in human history. 700 lives, I think it was 700 lives were lost, $200 billion in economic destruction. And the story really focused on Texas, but it wasn't just Texas. It was the southern parts of the mid-continent independent system operator. So Louisiana experienced a lot of blackouts. The southern part of the Southwest Power Pool, which is you know just north of Texas, parts of northern Texas, Oklahoma, experienced blackouts. But obviously, you know, it hit Texas the hardest, especially because, you know, in a state that's typically known for warm temperatures, it experienced record cold temperatures and just wasn't prepared. The unfortunate fact is, with technology that we have available today, we could have prevented it. And the solution to these challenges associated with climate change are lying fallow right beneath our feet or right on our walls in the form of a Nest thermostat or in our garages in the form of an electric vehicle or on-site generation at large energy consumers. We have an amazing resource that simply needs to be internetworked to mm. help alleviate the challenges of climate change. And that's what DERs are all about. Right. So you're saying that what you are doing is actually a solution to the type of problem which Texas experienced. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as a as a case in point, how, how many Ford F-150s are there in Texas? I'm going to Google I don't know. How many are there? There's I'm, a lot. I'm going to Google it. I mean, I, I don't... How many, how how many, many electric Ford F-150s are there going to be in Texas? Well, here's the point I was hoping to make with a quick Google search. You know, Ford came out with F-150 Lightning where the vehicle is capable of exporting its battery capacity into a home, which conceivably could also be exported to the grid with the right safety equipment. That's the promise of V2G, vehicle to grid. What we do know is that with the number of EVs projected to be in Texas by the year 2030, if all of those vehicles had the ability to export their capacity in Texas, the blackout in Texas could have been prevented by the internetworking of the capability of those EVs. And I suspect that by the year 2030, there are going to be a lot of Ford F-150s in Texas capable of de- delivering that service. And Rivian. Sure. Yeah. Uh, ho- hopefully many other brands delivering 
uh, incredible quality electric vehicles that meet the unique demands of consumers in every part of the country. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Like the uh, Texans could prevent a catastrophe like this from their EV pickup truck. Totally. And and what an awesome story that is, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm curious what this is doing with the politics of the situation, too. Well, I find it fascinating because, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas came out almost immediately and took a shot at wind generation. Mm-hmm. And attempted to make renewable energy the fall guy of the situation. You may have noticed the next morning, he walked back that rhetoric. And I don't actually know the inside baseball on this, but I found it fascinating. And I suspect it's largely due to the fact that the wind energy industry has among the fastest growing labor force Mm -hmm. in the country. And somebody probably called Governor Abbott and said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but... (laughs) This industry is massive and they employ a lot of people and you need to walk back that rhetoric. Absolutely. And uh, we won't go into it and we'll end this part of the conversation here. But I can tell you as a Texan, I heard that the blame ultimately lies with the utilities because they didn't pay or they didn't charge customers to pay like a penny extra or whatever it is to weatherize the wind farms. Right. It's, it's not that much more. And they chose not to do that. And so they the wind turbines froze as a result. Yeah. You know, I, the whole Texas thing, I, I looked at it and I said, you know, it, it's so easy to blame. Right. This is the man and the woman in the arena kind of yeah. moment where it's like, let's not fault the folks that made the decisions because everybody enjoyed super low electricity prices in Texas for the last 20 years because of the market design. People weren't expecting the girdle of the polar vortex to break loose and for that cold front to move all the way south to Texas and take down its economy. Nobody could have predicted that. So Mm -hmm. I find the sideline snipers taking shots from whatever sideline they're on at the various resources and market constructs to be completely unproductive. What we know is that we have solutions available today that are inexpensive, that can be deployed quickly, and everybody can enjoy the benefits of. Right. The problem will be if we don't take advantage of that. That's, that's where heads should roll. So if we do take advantage of it, what does the grid look like in 10 years? The grid is a decarbonized, decentralized, and digitized network, taking full advantage of the network effects that we all enjoy in our modern technology stack. We know that there is resilience in networking millions of devices. We know we can decarbonize with massive amounts of intermittent renewables, but we have to couple that to the backstop and balancing value of distributed energy resources. When all of those things are interconnected, we will have less expensive electricity, more reliable electricity, and clean and sustainable electricity that breaks our habit of fossil fuels. Let's put an exclamation point at the end of less expensive. Amen, brother. Amen. Everybody loves a good bargain. I mean, that's the basis of what (laughs) this is all about. Like, we don't come at people with a green and clean approach. What's your tagline again of Voltus? Better energy, more cash. Right. I love that. (laughs) Okay. So every episode, I provide the opportunity for the guest to name three founders, entrepreneurs, and or startups that they love 
and other people should know about? Who or what are your three? You know, first and foremost, I'd say Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Um, Right. It's like, if you read her backstory, it's amazing on so many levels. And what benefits she has brought to the world are incalculable. Uh, She's at the top top of my list. But on Oprah, just real quick on Oprah, isn't she an investor in some climate tech? I know she lives in Santa Barbara, and I think that she invested in appeal. I could be wrong. I want to say, Oprah, next time you give out, which is amazing, but you give out or give away a bunch of cars, let's make them EVs. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, I like, like Oprah is going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> you, you never know. You know, think yeah. big. Big, yeah. Are, are you connected to Oprah? Do you do you know her? I don't. Um, but my co-founder's wife Anne used to report to Oprah, I believe, and okay. uh, and know her well. Okay, we're gonna get this to Oprah. All right, Oprah <laughs> is gonna listen to this podcast, and then she's going to give away some EVs and promote Voltus at the same time. Love it. <laughs> so what, what, what's uh, what's the second one? Yeah, so Doug Tompkins, founder of the North Face, he sold it a few years after he started it. But, you know, there's the the startup war story between the North Face and Patagonia. But Mm -hmm. I grew up just loving North Face product. It was way out of my price range. But, you know, I was a very avid outdoorsman, whether it was skiing or mountaineering, rock climbing, whatever. And the North Face was just a big part of those experiences for me. And and I love the story of how the North Face started. And then, you know, a more modern story, Reed Hoffman and LinkedIn and many other startups. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, he is arguably, well, he probably is the most prolific founder of companies. Obviously, he's been very successful, but I really love his perspectives on startups and LinkedIn has obviously changed the world. Is he, invi- is he investing in climate as well? I don't know. I sure hope so. I sure hope so, too, because he lives in the Bay Area. And if he's not, then he should, considering he lives here. Yeah, I think that the, I think the trend that we're seeing, and the data certainly supports it, is you know, clean tech 2.0, which I would characterize more as ESG investment, mm-hmm. is here to stay. Um, because climate change is at, our door, at, at the doorstep of every human being on the planet. And whether we prevent the real catastrophic challenges of climate change and we get our act together and we avoid the two degree temperature increase or not, climate technologies are going to be extremely important in the future. And I think that we will see one of the greatest transitions of wealth our generation has ever seen in climate tech. Absolutely. And so first and foremost, people need to support founders and entrepreneurs who are creating these solutions. And one way to do that is with Climate Aid 2022. And I want to put, we don't have any sponsors yet for this, okay? But I want to put Voltus on the spot by putting two friends of mine on the spot who are board members of yours. And so therefore would not object to Voltus sponsoring, and in fact, should therefore join in 
with the fundraising activities to get this epic concert festival off the ground. I'm calling out Viri Maxwell and Tim Woodward to to do so. And they can't object now because they like me, they like you, obviously, to Voltis potentially sponsoring this, but they could also support in other ways. And yeah, I am doing this. I am I'm shilling uh Climate Tech Gay 2022 to your board members. Yeah, I love it. I love that you're selling here. And you know, <laughs> Tim and Beery have deep pockets and they they, they put their money where their mouth is. And this is what we call consistency, one of the six weapons of influence. We're big fans of Dr. Robert Cialdini here at Voltus and uh, and his book, his seminal book, Influence. Mm-hmm. And so right now you're leveraging the power of consistency, ensuring <laughs> that Tim and Viri are consistent with putting their money where their mouth is. They are. They are. And they're consistent with getting other people with deep pockets to support what they're supporting as well. Yeah, they, they they run they run with uh, the highbrow crowd for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that being said, are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with? Put love in your heart and get into the arena. Bam! Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Greg Dixon, and everybody. Go out and support Voltus. Love what you're doing, and I'll see you at Climate Tech A 2022 performing. I love it. I love it. I hope to I hope to share an Americano when I with you when I see you, Matt. Thanks for having Amazing. us on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. The resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about, drink recipes, various people companies, so on and so forth, will all be linked in the show notes on our Substack at climatetechcocktails.substack.com. If you want to write us, our email address is m at climatetechcocktails.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at ct underscore cocktails and on Instagram, hashtag climatetechcocktails. You can reach me personally by carrier pigeon or on my LinkedIn forward slash Matthew J. Myers. Until next time, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you.